And welcome back to our series through the Apostle Peter's first letter to the church. Today we will finish a two-part sermon on a section of Scripture about brotherly love. I spent some time in the first part explaining that uh, what, why this is called brotherly, this love, this special kind of love in the church. Why is it called brotherly in our text? See, the Bible teaches that through faith, Christ becomes our brother. And so please always remember that Jesus is the brother being referred to in the brotherly love of Scripture. We are called brethren in the church because Christ is our mutual brother. This also means that we will only be able to love each other in the church as God desires when we relate to each other through Christ. What does that even mean? It means that when you see the person across the row at church, you understand that through Christ you are looking at a brother or a sister, and that through Christ God is both your father and his or her father, and that through Christ. God is both your father, his or her father, and it means that you'll be together. <laughs> That's a big one. That you'll be together forever with each other in heaven, with God as a family. And see, so when you really believe those truths, well, you'll be starting from the right place as you seek to grow in love for that person. Let's read our text again from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through the third verse of chapter 2. This is the word of God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So from last week, having been drawn from the first couple of verses, point one was this, brothers and sisters in Christ must love one another purely. Listen to these words once more. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for what? For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. How is it that we came to have a second family? by being born again. We talked last time in terms of our first birth family and our second birth family, and we talked about how we must practice, indeed, an unnatural, i.e. spiritual love for our second birth family. That is, we need to have a love that is purified by the Spirit of God. There is nothing natural about love in your second birth family. No, this love is going to be spiritual or it will be short-lived, shallow, and selfish, anything but pure. I also pulled out three ways that we can discover and practice this kind of love in the church. We love each other earnestly or purely first by obedience to the truth. 
Peter says our souls are purified by obedience to the truth. And he says one point of that purity is for a sincere brotherly love. We are purified so that we can love one another as God loves us. I explained that first and foremost, this obedience to the truth refers to our initial response to the gospel, that original spiritual transformation that we call salvation or being born again. But then I also talked about the fact that as we walk salvation out in daily life obedience, we place ourselves in the position to be able to actually love each other in purity. Continuing our review, the second way Peter mentions that we can purify our love for one another is through earnest or in the NASB, fervent effort. Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Again, there's nothing about this love that will be natural because nothing we do in the spirit comes naturally. Truly walking out pure love in Christ while remaining in these bodies, uh, while, while still living on this cursed earth, will require focused effort. As I put it last time from Peter's first letter, overall, we should come to understand that what is automatic is of the flesh. One point within that statement is that we need to leave our passivity behind in the church of Jesus Christ. While we can do nothing apart from him, we also can do little without effort. Jesus does not walk us around like puppets and move us, make us say nice things to people, right? He does not force us to be encouraging or self-sacrificing. No, he gives us the power to love purely. But this kind of love will never be automatic for as long as we are left in these bodies on this planet. That's why we need to hear and obey the command to love each other earnestly. Third, Peter says, we can love each other with the pure brotherly love of Christ when we do so in the spirit. This is found in verse 23 in the phrase, since you have been born again. I ask you to always think of the Holy Spirit every time you hear the phrase or read the phrase in the Bible that we are born again. While our first birth was natural and every human has experienced it, our second birth is of the Spirit. And so only those born a second time by the Spirit can love each other in the Spirit. Peter is saying, see that you do so. That you love your Christian brothers and sisters by tapping into this new way of love in the spirit. See, folks, only God can fuel the kind of love we strive for in his church. Then we have one more point to briefly review from last time. Point two, that brothers and sisters in Christ should remember they get to be together forever. Peter says, love one another from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable, but of Im a seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What is Peter thinking of here when he talks about the perishable and the imperishable? He points to the word of God as this imperishable seed planted within us, but what are the results of that seed? In context, it's clear that the point is not only salvation, but the resultant spiritual relationships that we now have with God and can have with each other. The point is that your love for these, your very brothers and sisters in Christ, is eternal. Since your second birth resulted from the imperishable seed of God's word, neither will the relationships forged out of that second birth ever perish. Everything we do 
and brotherly love is eternal. It's imperishable. We never really leave each other, church family. You and I will honestly and truly be together forever. What this means is that every ounce of effort, every sacrificial moment, every act of kindness, of prayer or encouragement or, or forgiveness applied toward growing in our love for each other as brethren will bear fruit for eternity. Our love is based on the promise of God, the word of God, the gospel, which is not perishable but imperishable. And listen, brotherly love may seem secondary to other types of love in the present, but this brotherly kind of love, the love of Christ that comes from him and flows through each other will one day be all that is left. This is the love of God flowing through his children, and it is indeed imperishable. Now, that was all review. So let's go on and finish the whole message with two more points from the text. Number three. Brothers and sisters in Christ need to remove natural tendencies from their relationships. Peter continues saying, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. I'll say it again, what is automatic is of the flesh. When it comes to our relationships, do you realize how automatic these five sinful tendencies are? We really need to see ourselves accurately today. Naturally, these are human relational tendencies. Unless by the Spirit we constantly remove them, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander will infest and overwhelm every single relationship we have on this earth, even our marriages. A good marriage counselor, whether they realize it or not, will be seeking to help each party remove these five tendencies. Where do these things come from? How do these tendencies get into our relationships? Simple answer, human nature. If you don't believe these are natural human tendencies, you may not be very self-aware. Oh, you meant me? I thought you were talking about most people. No, I meant you and me. You and me naturally tend toward malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Yes, really. As someone said, people in the church are like porcupines in a snowstorm. We need to gather to keep warm, but we start poking holes in each other if we get too close. Think about it. When's the last time you said something negative about a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe you're a quiet person. Oh, to be like you. <laughs> but still, even as a quiet person, when is the last time you thought poorly of a brother or sister? When is the last time you wanted what someone had? Or to be what you perceive someone else to be? Maybe you tend to think they want what you have, or they want to hurt you, or even that they don't like you, when maybe they like you just fine, they just don't necessarily think that you're the greatest person to ever live. And when have you ever tried to make yourself look better than you are? 
when have you tried to look better than somebody else? Have you ever thought someone doesn't deserve what they have? Have you ever said something adverse about someone else that maybe wasn't really quite fair? You ever cast doubt on the character of another person? You ever question their motives when they do something good? I'm afraid we all do all this all the time. Someone out there may be thinking, not me. Well, if that's really true, I can tell you one thing. It didn't come naturally. I suppose someone could be walking closely enough to Jesus that there is a respite in your fight against these five tendencies, but I'll just be honest and tell you that I am not yet there myself. I have to fight to remove every single one of these sinful tendencies constantly. If I'm working toward pure love with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I will need to constantly put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And that's a fact. I need to recognize these cancers and submit to God for spiritual surgery probably just about every day if I'm going to aspire to pure brotherly love with others who hopefully are doing the same. God help us all, and I mean that. We're going to briefly talk about each of these five tendencies, but let me first tell you that I'm not all that worried about uh, you getting some precise particular meaning out of each of these words. Lists of words like these in the Bible are not usually intended to be parsed, I don't think. I just can't imagine the churches in Asia Minor who received this letter sitting down with their Bibles and a Greek dictionary debating over uh, trying to discern exactly what God had meant by inspiring each and every one of these words as if, in, as in slander, it's important to know whether God meant actually lying about someone or simply speaking ill of them. What, what did God mean precisely? And by the way, that's actually a debate you could find in a commentary right now. Listen, all these words together basically mean one thing, and that is that humans are naturally self-centered and self-advancing and self-exalting. We are selfish to the core, and sadly, that includes those of us who have been born again. The difference is that in Christ, because we are born again, we have the power to overcome these tendencies, but that does not mean that we will automatically overcome them. Selfishness may be the most natural tendency that we've ever identified in the human race, and yet selfishness is antithetical to brotherly love. But someone says, oh, haven't you heard, Pastor? You have to love yourself before you can love others. I have a sophisticated one-word response to that statement, baloney. Hear this, you don't need to love yourself first before you can love others. No, you need to experience the love of God before you can love others. And by the way, you will never love yourself fully until you love others more than yourself. I warn you today, and somebody needs to hear this, if you start with yourself, you will never make it out. If you start with yourself, you will never get out of yourself because self is the biggest trap there is in life. So listen, self-loather. Listen, even self-harmer. Listen to you who maybe have a poor self-image and who tend to be down on yourself. Do you know why you don't love yourself? Because there's too much of you left. You have not spent enough of yourself in loving others. You don't love yourself because deep down you know how much malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are in your heart. And see, those things are hard to love, even in yourself. 
Do you want to love yourself better? Start loving other people better through the spiritual power of Christ in you. When you become a loved and loving person, you become a lovely person. And that's when you'll find genuine love for who you are becoming. Not to mention that others will love you more as well. So in case I haven't been clear, let me just deal with this head on. You'll never become a more loving person when you start with yourself. By the way, worldly wisdom is never, and I repeat, never the whole truth. There may sometimes be some truth in it. But as a whole, worldly thoughts are never truth. At the very least, if an idea comes from the world, it is never the full truth. Why? Because the world, because worldly wisdom never starts with God, who is, from last week, truth. Now, I said we'd go ahead and break these words out briefly, so let's do that. First of all, malice. This is probably the hardest one for us to believe about ourselves. Do I really have malice in my heart? Basically, to have malice means to wish evil upon others. Sometimes the original Greek word here is translated simply as wickedness or even depravity, but in this context, it's spoken of with regard to brotherly love, and the idea is that sometimes we have malice or evil thoughts even toward other people in the family of God. Peter says, put malice away. Get rid of it. But what do we do instead? Sometimes we fan it to a flame. Do we not? Think about the worst moments in your Christian experience. When you were all worked up about something somebody said or somebody did at church. Maybe a church was splitting. Maybe some folks were behaving terribly and you were hurt. Am I wrong or did that thing and that person begin to dominate your thoughts? And wasn't it the thing that you talked about the most and didn't you even seek out more information to fuel that fire? Didn't you possibly even search for more negative information that you could hold against that person or those people? Or at the first hint of malice, did you just put it away? If so, you're rare. I've been watching this happen in churches and in our convention of churches for decades, and consistently I have observed that malice begets malice. Somebody needed to put it away somewhere along the chain. So do you have malice in your heart? toward any other brother or sister in Christ. Oh, it sounds so bad, malice. Yeah, that's because it is bad. So, is there anyone you secretly hope won't do well? Maybe you maybe aren't wishing they would die, but you just assume everybody else feel the same way about that person as you feel, right? I mean, if they only knew how bad that person really can be, do you know another brother or sister in Christ who you wish would not be successful or who you wish everybody could know is not so great as others maybe think they are? Don't feel like the Lone Ranger. Let me tell you something. I've had malice toward people in the church before. I've had malice that needed to be removed. In some cases, I'm still fighting to remove it. You want to talk about church hurt? This pastor has plenty of church hurt. Not don't take that personally. It's, it's all in the past, <laughs> pretty much. Really, truly, it is. Yeah, I'm fighting to remove it, fighting to put it away, or really to work with God to do so. 
But I can tell you that when it rises back up, I'm committed to putting it back down. One thing we need to understand is that if we have any of these five attitudes in our hearts toward any brother or sister, our love for our other brothers and sisters is less than pure. It's like there's yeast in our dough. But then I really, I like yeasty dough, especially donuts. So I've never really loved that biblical illustration. Hopefully God will forgive me for not liking the yeast metaphor in the Bible. But how about this for the point today? It's like you have poop in your brownies. Okay, I'm sorry, but I'm not just being crass. I want you to feel this like in your mouth. I think there's got something caught in your teeth there. Listen, if you just have, if you have just a little bit of malice thrown into your general love of the brethren, which may be like brownies, I know, you have a little poop in there, and you wonder why the brownies weren't so great. It's true of any of these tendencies, that if you have any of them in your heart for anyone in the family, that messes with your ability to love everybody else. You know it's true. This stuff spills over too, you know. If I tell you about some pastor who I hope fails because I think poorly of him, because he, uh, he's hurt me or because I don't think he deserves it or because I, I think, let's go with this one, I think he's got wrong doctrine or his theology is off and I just, you know, I hope he doesn't do well, really, because it's, he's, he's wrong. You know, he's off. There's problems with him. Uh, do you feel love of the brethren flowing through that as you listen to me talk? No, malice and all these other things are like cancers tainting the brotherly love you and I have to give. Peter says, put it away. Get rid of things like malice. Stop letting these relationship killers out into the family of God. And you know, that's another little side point. When we speak things, we give those things power. And I'm sometimes the worst. I talk a lot, right? Are you surprised? Um, I'm a verbal processor. And uh, I identify people that I trust, and then I tend to dump all over them. Don't say amen, Bevan. <laughs> you knew that already? And then I apologize. I apologize. I apologize. What? I, right. I have problems. I need to put these things away. Just put it away. Don't speak it. Don't give it power. Words have power. Just put it away. And stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Don't feed it. Maybe you can't remove all malice completely, but at the very least, you can put it away. You can shut up about it. You can stop dwelling on it. Put away all malice. That's what the Word of God says. Secondly, put away all deceit. Obviously, this includes lying, but also includes intentionally misleading. Here's an example. It would be deceitful of me to let you think I am an expert in the biblical languages. I am not only not an expert, but to put it plainly, I do not know jack squat about the biblical languages. I have a decade's worth of degrees, but I just didn't go there in my studies. I stayed with more practical things and for my own 
desire. So you might as well know. What I can do is look things up, same as you, but Greek is really still Greek to me. Last week, Bill demonstrated his formidable deftness with the original languages, something he has taught himself over many years, and that was impressive, and it can be very helpful in our body. But even though I sometimes share a Greek word or two, let me make sure you know that I have never learned Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, and the truth is that the vast majority of pastors have not. Sometimes we let you think we know more than we do. And that could potentially be deceitful. Regardless, and this is a side point, but listen and hear me say that all the pastors I have ever known trust the translations. And so should you. And so does Bill. And so does my favorite world-renowned Greek scholar who happens to live in Washougal, just across the river, or not just across the river, just down 14, Bill Mounts. Great guy to check out if you want to know more about Greek. He believes that too. That he trusts the translations. We all trust the translations. Nobody's better than the people who translate. That's the best there is, those that translate. We trust the translations. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if any of us ever says something that does not line up with the Bible that you can hold in your hands and read for yourself, then we're the ones who are wrong. Now, by the way, the Greek word for deceit here in our text is dolos. Do you know what dolos means? Deceit. Are we tracking? Are we tracking? All right, so how else might I uh, illustrate deceit? Have you ever exaggerated? Right? Okay, but how does this apply to brotherly love? How does deceit take away the purity or reduce the earnestness of our brotherly love? Well, if I can't be trusted in one thing, I probably can't be trusted in another, in another, right? I think we know, we all know how important trust is in our relationships. Put away all deceit. Next, Peter lists hypocrisy. By the way, do you know what is the Greek word for hypocrisy? It's hypocrisis. It's hypocrisis. We have a lot of English words based on Greek, so you probably know more Greek than you realize. Words like Chick-fil-A, <laughs> which obviously comes from the Bible. And I'm pretty sure that Chick-fil-A is actually three words in the original Greek, and now everybody's hungry, and so I'm sorry about that, but worse, it's Sunday. And that means your cravings will have to wait, because in the Greek, Chick-fil-A actually means three words, closed on Sunday. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm being deceitful. But let's get back to hypocrisy, which means basically acting. You know, like actors and actresses. Anyone ever guilty of playing church games? Of acting the part of a Christian? Or just not being real? Anybody ever act like you're someone that God knows you're not? Now, I do want to make one distinction here. It is not wrong to act before you feel, as in like a verb, as in action. To act in love before you feel love is to love in a godly way. That's actually a wonderful thing, a powerful, life-changing thing to do. But here Peter's talking about ending the pretending. 
We can take action before we feel motivated to do so, and we often must do exactly that because spiritual things are not automatic. But right now, the point is that we should never pretend to be better than we are, and we should be honest about our failures. What happens when we pretend in the church? Well, one thing that happens is that we don't really get to know each other, and that can basically mean that we don't really love each other. Do I love you or the persona of you? Some people pretend to the point that it boggles the mind. I may never get over Ravi Zacharias. And if you don't know, I'm not going to be the one to tell you. Listen, hypocrisy takes away the purity of love in the church family. Can you imagine if you found out your pastor had been committing adultery like for years and covering it up? Okay, it's hard to imagine. I don't want to imagine it. But what does this do to brotherly love in that particular church family? It nukes it. But what if it's just a church member living in hypocrisy? Well, maybe it doesn't go nuclear, but it's still going to wipe out like a small village, okay? It's still bad. It still kills love. Hypocrisy is to the church what AI will be to the internet. I'm just going to leave that right there because I like to make people think. Next, Peter says, put away envy. Now, folks, this one's sneaky. I don't think any of us really wants to know how much envy goes on in our own hearts. MCU fans, it is MCU, right? The Marvel thing. Yeah, somehow for a second I thought that sounds more like a, like a university or something. Anyway, if you're a fan of that, and the Greek word here is basically Thanos. Thanos. You know the ugly, bald, bluish guy? Thanos who wipes out half of all life in the universe? Yeah, envy is a good name for him because envy ultimately destroys. I mean, envy starts wars. Envy could be referred to as inappropriate jealousy. Is there such a thing as appropriate jealousy? Yes, there is, but I don't have time to go into that today. Suffice it to say that sinful jealousy is also known as envy, so thankfully none of us here ever have this problem, right? How can I help you see? Do you ever fail to give someone the benefit of the doubt? Envy is probably the reason. How so? Well, you really don't want to think so highly of them because if you're not careful, they will be better than you are. And worse, to the degree that you are not as good as, they are not as good as you are, you feel better. That's what envy does in your heart. If someone preaches the best sermon I've ever heard, am I thinking, maybe they used AI? That's two references to AI in one sermon. Seriously, am I thinking, maybe they plagiarized it? If it's too good, why am I not giving that person the benefit of the doubt? Because of sinful jealousy. What would it be for you? I don't know, but I can almost guarantee that if you forced yourself to journal every time you tear someone else down or cast doubt or question motives or go back to, uh, and go back to that journal in a month, you're likely to see envy and jealousy written all over those pages. See, envy causes us to hurt people in the minds of others, if not to their face. 
Obviously, envy kills brotherly love in the church, perhaps like nothing else. So we need to put it away. Lastly, Peter says, put away all slander. Now, slander can be outright lies or simply negative innuendo. One literal translation is simply evil speech, but again, in context, this is evil speech about someone else in the church family. Gossip is closely related, only gossip is still gossip, even if it's true. Something to ponder another time, but slander means the information probably is not true, or it isn't fair, or more often, it simply is not the whole story. Did you know Pastor Mark is putting his son in charge when he leaves? Okay, somebody was to say something like that, and I'm not saying anyone has, but if somebody was to say something like that, it would be slanderous. Why? Because as I've repeatedly made clear, it's going to be up to our six-member pastor-elder team. By the way, I get one vote. It's not like we're all just going to kind of come to something. I get one vote. And then if we unanimously recommend Connor, it'll next be up to you. And if there's not an overwhelmingly positive vote, Connor will humbly step back. And a search process for the next lead pastor will begin. Simple as that. And if you want to know the truth, what I want more than you can possibly imagine is to bring my son with me. But I also care about this particular church probably more than any other person here. And because I care so much, I've suggested that Connor stay and see things through. More importantly, Connor believes, and we'll be sharing with you soon, that he is called to carry this church forward, and God has spoken to him both recently and years ago, that one day he would finish what I started. Nothing could be more biblical. You look at spiritual leadership in the church. How did it get passed down? A mantle was passed down to the next person over and over. I'll let him share the whole story next time he preaches. I'm pretty sure it's going to be two weeks from today. So you'll hear from Connor soon in his own words. And for the record, timing had not been right for him to do that until now, in my opinion. What did I say? I said we'd give Connor some reps preaching, right? Remember in April? I said we're going to give him, let, let's see what we think. Let's see how he does. Let's see how he feels preaching once a month. He's preached once a month ever since then. He's felt affirmed. He's felt like God is affirming it. He's done well. And so now it's time for him to share. And so I've given him the green light to do that. For brotherly love to thrive in our church, we need to put away all slander. What about me? Have I struggled with any slander lately? Answer, yes. Particularly, this season makes me think of the last time I did this. And uh, the last time I was sent out to plant another church, um, plant this church. And uh, there were things that happened on my way out of the last church. Um, and I don't know for sure who did what or who said what or um, that my interpretation of certain events is, is accurate. And so, you know, but I, in assumptions, I have said borderline evil things about certain leaders there. And I repent of that because... One, I don't know how much of it is true. And two, regardless, I need to put that evil speech away. Slander is ugly and it destroys Christian brotherhood, not only between me and them, but if it's there in my heart, it's, it's hurting it here. 
in more ways than I can understand. And so at any point, if at any point I have engaged in slander about any of you, believe me, I regret it. Every bad thing I've said about another brother or sister in Christ, I regret. And so I'm redoubling my efforts to put that away today. I hope you'll join me. But what I'm telling you is that for humanity, these five tendencies are relationally normal. Malice, deceit, envy, slander, and hypocrisy are natural. These are automatic. But we have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. We can do better. We must do better. The story is told of Andrew Jackson in the time before he became our seventh president when he served as commander of the Tennessee militia. And during the War of 1812, that things were not going well. And the troops had begun to bicker and fight among themselves. As the story goes, Andrew Jackson brought them all together and simply said, this was his speech, gentlemen, let's remember the enemy is over there. Simple and true. In our case, most of the time, the enemy is inside. And the battle we need to win is fought against our selfish tendencies. I'll say it again. Brothers and sisters in Christ need to remove natural tendencies from their relationships. All right, so let's bring this horse into the barn with the final point from this passage. Number four, brothers and sisters in Christ grow in love through the ministry of God's word. Look at verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Next comes the verse about malice and slander and all the rest, almost as a parenthesis, and then the following verse, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So let's synthesize these verses and walk through them for a minute, sort of in bullet points. It's pretty simple. First, Peter says, God's word remains forever. Second, he says, God's word is the good news, the gospel. That's what gospel means, good news. The gospel that was preached. Third, he says, God's word is designed to help you grow. And that's basically what this says. All right, so all of this is about what we call the Bible the written word of God that remains forever, that through taking in and believing these very words from God, we can grow in spiritual maturity. But now in context, we also see that taking in this word can help us grow in our brotherly love for each other. But that's not all. Notice how he wraps this up. Peter tacks on to the end of these, those three previous truth statements about God's word, this phrase, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He does this after talking about the spiritual milk of God's word and craving that milk like a baby who is longing to be fed. By the way, you think you have a baby that cries for their bottle? You did not have Tori. <laughs> that girl has pipes. She still does. I don't even know how high she can sing. Don't want to know. It hurts. Yeah. That's just a little side bonus note that when I see this, when I hear this, what do I, I think of Tori. I mean, screaming for that bottle. Connor was like, beep, <laughs> compared to her. It's funny how they're all different, isn't it? 
if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. He does this after talking about the spiritual milk of God's word and craving it like a baby who's longing to be fed. All right, so don't miss the link. And here it is. Through the word of God, we receive God himself. Through the word of God, we receive God. This book, the Bible, is not primarily words on a page. Through these words, God comes into your heart. Through these words, God changes your heart. Through these words, God allows you to taste or to experience Him. I love how Robbie Gallaty puts it in Firmly Planted, a book I often use to disciple others. Gallaty says, the Word does the work. He says this phrase over and over until it sticks, that the Word of God will do the work of God in your life if you will simply take it in. And this point I'm making today is exactly what he means. As Peter puts it, the Word of God is like a mother's milk to a baby. The milk does the work. But why? Why does the Word of God work? The Word of God works because God comes to us through it. He's the one we're tasting. God is the one we're tasting through His Word. See, this is one of the reasons why Jesus is referred to as the Word made flesh. As Bill talked about last week, the living Word of God. Because through the written Word, Jesus is made manifest within us. Through God's Word, we can know Jesus spiritually. And listen, we don't just come to know about Jesus through His Word. Rather, we actually come to know Him. Or have you not tasted have you not seen, have you not come to know through God's word that the Lord is good? This is what Peter is asking. All that said, consider how this applies to the overarching point about brotherly love. See, our love for each other in the church can only grow stronger through spiritual maturity. As we grow in the spirit, we grow in love because it's his love, remember? That was part of point one, that this brotherly love is referred to as brotherly precisely because we're talking about the love of Christ, our brother. Only his love is pure and worth sharing. And so only to the degree that we abide in Christ do we have his brotherly love to give each other. And how do we abide in Christ? How do we get more of his love into us so that we have more of it to give? How do we grow in spiritual maturity so that we can love with a spiritually mature love? Through his word. Only through the Word of God do we get the milk of God that brings the spiritual maturity that we need to love each other with His love. What happens as we take in God's Word? Let me tell you what happens. God comes bursting into our lives. Remember it this way. More written Word equals more living Word. One equivocation. I do think it's possible to study the Bible in such a way that maybe this doesn't happen. Uh, I think there's an academic way to look at Scripture or a faithless way, uh, maybe a, a critical way, I don't know, a heartless, faithless way that just kind of squelches the Spirit, but I'm really not worried about that with any of you. So let's get back to the point. God comes into us through His Word and He grows us. Like a baby, we taste and we see that He is good. Like a baby, we're nourished and we grow from the spiritual milk of the Word of God. Now, I don't want to shock you with this, but some of you need a bottle. 
right about now. Last Monday, I needed a bottle. I think it was Wednesday and also again on Saturday. I needed a bottle. Stop laughing. I needed more of God and less of me, and I found him through his word. But I wonder if anyone has realized what this also means. If our love for each other grows through the ministry of God's word, because only God's word grows us spiritually, this also means that our capacity for brotherly love is limited to our intake of God's word. Why? Again, because through the word we get God. Even further, I think brotherly love between two people in the church can be sort of capped off at the spiritual maturity level of kind of the least common denominator of the two. Um, and so that means we're all in this together, right? I mean, our church can be kind of limited by the spiritual maturity level of our church because we can only love with God's love as much as love, His love we have to give, right? Let's get some milk. We need to grow. So there you have it. Over 30 single-spaced pages in a two-part sermon on brotherly love, probably an hour and a half of preaching on the topic, maybe some interesting thoughts if I'm generous with myself. I like that Chick-fil-A part, Pastor. That was the best part. <laughs> but will any of what I've shared change anything for anyone here if not I've wasted my time and yours I do believe I've preached the word applying it to your life and so I pray that God will do the work and that you'll make the effort because there's nothing deeper or more important on this earth than to see the pure brotherly love of Christ grow within his church Amen. let's pray that God will do something Lord I first pray that if there's anything uh, today that, that any of us needs to uh, respond with, and, and I will say, Lord, you know that sometimes it's better to just deal with it. Sometimes we need to go to a person. Sometimes we don't. Just give us discernment. But whatever the action is, Lord, that needs to happen, there's something we need to put away. Um, help us to to follow you in whatever that action is. Um, and, and I pray that the, the brothers and sisters of Christ who call Go Church home would grow in love for each other. It takes time. It takes spiritual maturity. So work in our lives, Lord. Thank you for those that make it a, a point to be here each week and hear the preaching of your word. That's that's a big part of what this is about. We study on our own. That's so important. We study in smaller groups. That's important. But the church assembled, hearing the preaching of the word of God to the church assembled, there is no substitute for that. If there's, if there's an iconic bottle that we need to get, it's that. Even more than anything else, I believe. The church assembled is something that you have called for, designed. We need each other. We need to hear your word preached. 
So thank you that today you've shared that with us and you've given us a message. I pray that each person here finds something somewhere in all of this to apply. That nobody leaves the same, that everybody leaves with at least one commitment um, to do something a little different, to put something away. I know you spoke to me this week so much, so much I need to do, so many ways I need you to work in my heart. So thank you that you've begun to do that. I commit to following through. I pray for others in the room. Make that kind of a commitment as well. Lord, this has certainly been a message to believers today, uh, but there may be those in the room who have never really uh, joined the family. And um, that is absolutely something that we have to do. It's not, a, it's not just automatic. We've got to say yes to the gospel. That first part we talked about, we've got to be put our lives in obedience to the truth that we have to respond to the good news that Jesus gave his life for us and that he paid the price for our sins and we have to say yes please remove my sin as far as the east is from the west cover my sin save my soul I come to you Lord in repentance wanting to be changed take my life change me and that's when we're born again I pray that even as I speak today that someone would make that decision that your spirit would come in and they would have a new family, the spiritual family, the family of God that would be real, eternal. And Lord, as I, as I close out this prayer, I, I just want to take a moment to, to say we're sorry. If I could just do that as one of the pastors across this nation, just one of... I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, tons of pastors today as, just to do my part. We're sorry for how badly we have failed at love of the brethren. We have our moments. We have our hugs. We have our, our times of being there for each other. But boy, we fail more often than not, I'm afraid. And it may be possibly even the biggest problem in the church today. So change our hearts. Let this church be different. It is different. This church is different. But we don't want to stop here. Protect our unity. When we have a question, help us go to Scripture, not our own reasoning. That includes me. And help us to love each other, Lord to realize and to remember we're going to be together forever let us do well in our time on earth in Jesus name I pray amen thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast if you enjoyed the sermon be sure to rate and review us if you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons check out our website www gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.